from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, investing in biodiversity, the new science-based targets for nature, why you should care about geoengineering, and could a global treaty on plastics actually change things? It's a material difference this week on 350. It's May 26, 2023, the start of a three-day Memorial Weekend here in the United States. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz Thrifty. Always so glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, already firing up the barbecue, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. What's cooking? Hello. I hope you are well, Joel. I am actually going, I hate, I hate to say it here on this podcast because some of our vegan audience will be upset with me, but I'm going to a pig roast <laughs> wow. this weekend. Yep. You mean where they put a whole pig on a spit over an open I, fire? I, yeah, I, I'm guessing that's what happens. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not having it. I'm not doing it myself. Um, I'm not a huge uh, carnivore, honestly, yeah. but it's some really dear close friends and I look forward to spending some time with them and just enjoy. It has been absolutely exquisite from a weather standpoint here in New Jersey. It's been like, it's actually been spring, <laughs> which I love. I love. So yeah, we went we went right from uh, from winter to summer here in the Bay Area, which means it's overcast and cold in the morning, and then it it hits a high of sixty eight and sunny in the afternoon, and then it's cold at night. So that's summer. What passes for summer here in the Bay Area, but uh, that's where we went. But maybe we'll get a little summer still before it's all over. Yeah, I hope you're well, and uh, you have a great weekend as well. Thanks. I'm looking forward to that. But you know what? Let's just get right in. To the weekend review. And speaking of weather and climate, let's start with a really terrific Green Biz 101 piece by our climate tech reporter Leah Garden on geoengineering. It's gathering momentum, and here's why you should care. Uh, now, you know, these kinds of explainers are always wonderful when when our team does these. And I, I love that uh, Leah, who covers climate tech, did, you know, pick this one and decided to really lean in and explain the basics of geoengineering. And it broke it down into two camps, which I wasn't aware of, carbon geoengineering, where you're removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and solar geoengineering, where, or solar radiation management, where you're, it's a little bit more out there, but you're basically you know, trying to deflect sunlight from the Earth's surface uh, in order to, uh, if not cool the planet, at least reduce the, the, the warming. So yeah, I, I think it's great. And this is, I really recommend anyone who's trying to sort of get their brains wrapped around this thing called geoengineering and uh, to, to lean into it. Uh, what was your sort of surprise or takeaway from this one, Heather? So I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I have written about this myself, so I'm. This is a topic that I discussed with Leah before she wrote, and 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 I I haven't actually seen someone break it down like you just did, like the coal, the carbon 
sort of um, the carbon geoengineering versus the solar. That to me was a great way of really making a distinction because because when she was developing this piece, we were debating. I was like, well, Leah, technically speaking, carbon removal is is geoengineering, and that is. Um, absolutely what a number more and more scientists are saying and that's part of the the challenge um it's coming one of the reasons i would you know just to to put a time frame uh, to put a a moment of urgency on it one of the reasons it's coming up um, is because some of these technologies um are coming into the commercial realm so like there's been a ton of talk about ocean carbon capture which does get us very much into the realm of like geoengineering of ecosystems like if you ch- if you put more carbon uh, concentration of of carbon you're capturing it and put it into the ocean water what's it going to do the ecosystem so it's coming up more because of the ethics and the concerns that um that people have the scientists have over how some of these um things will will affect the world around us and also you know like if you're injecting oil essentially bio oil something like you know one of the big um one of the startups that's had a lot of attention over the last few weeks in terms of carbon removal is Charm Industrial, which basically captures carbon out of biomass, right, as it's being um, processed, and then turns it into an oil, which is then injected into the ground, into g- rock, into into the into our earth. So, wh- what over time will that mean for for the the land under, you know, above it, um, you know, for the the stability of rock formation. I mean, there's there's just so much we don't know, and so I think that that there's just a great we're hitting this moment where we absolutely like just like we're having all of these ethics conversations over artificial intelligence, we're going to have a ton of them over this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there's the ethics, there's the cost of trillions and trillions of dollars for largely unproven technologies but yeah the the unintended consequences of messing with you know mother earth and what is she going to do in return and what are the things we didn't anticipate uh you know be, because of the web of life because everything is uh, interconnected fabric when you tug on one thing over here what happens over there that's the really interesting and potentially frightening part and you know and, and the other hand we we need to be looking at a lot of solutions, and I think that's that's the ethical dilemma. I think is how how much do we uh, try to you know this is the end these are end of pipe solutions largely, or at least the the carbon removal stuff is is you know injecting um, things as you said into rock. This is end of pipe is things that pollution we've already created that we have to deal with, as opposed to stopping the pollution in the first place. And now. We need to do both very clearly. Let's not tiptoe around that. And so that's where geoengineering could potentially come in. And then, you know, Leah writes about the uh, potential geopolitical ramifications. You know, what does one company try to rep- uh, weaponize the weather uh, by intentionally weakening the power of the sun and maybe even targeting where that sun does not go anymore, causing agricultural failures or uh, triggering uh, extreme weather uh, events. Uh, you know, that's a whole nother piece that she doesn't get into that, but she does acknowledge that. And she is going to get into that in part two. She's definitely part got two. another one coming. So uh, oh, great. let's watch for that. But yeah, this, this, we, this is one of those massive topics that um, you can't just write about once. 
Yeah. Well, here's another uh, massive topic that uh, Jesse Klein, a senior editor, wrote on this uh, this week. The Science uh, Based Targets Network published the first f- framework intended for helping you know in- encouraging companies to to uh, you know understand basically answering the question: What can a company do today to ensure it's doing its part for an equitable, net zero, and nature positive future? Um, Big question there, but what is a company's fair share of reversing biodiversity loss and ensuring biodiversity regeneration and resilience? And so now there's this uh, apparently 2,000 companies. Well, I guess they've already uh, Science-Based Targets Initiative has the greenhouse gas uh, uh, protocol about what's a company's fair share of the climate problem. Uh, 2,000 companies have have, have leaned into that and are reporting around that. And it's become embedded into corporate practice and policy in some cases. Now, how do you do that with nature? It strikes me as a lot more complicated. I mean, greenhouse gas emissions, you either emit them or you don't. You count them probably. It's not simple to count. There's a whole industry built around counting. But counting for nature just seems really (laughs) challenging. Right, and and exactly why this framework is coming out. They're trying to help companies um, better understand what's po- you know what makes sense within the realm of their, their current business model and what maybe they should aspire to in terms of biodiversity. So I love the, the, the first of all, just 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 to make it clear, this is a very early framework. So they're they're opening the um, essentially this. program right now to just 17 pilot companies and so until next year like it'll be it'll be available to more companies next year what i like about the pilot companies um, is that it's a really interesting mix of retailers and food companies and centauri centauri is the um the company behind uh lots of liquor i believe um beverages and so forth but like nestle's in here as a pilot and ab imbev tesco right? The, the big supermarket chain in the UK. Um, H&M Group, which of course sources things like cotton and wool and other commodity type textiles that are really reliant on, on, uh, on agriculture. So I'm curious to see how, they, how the guidance plays out among different industries. If it does, I don't know if it will. Um, I also like the fact that it focuses on just not just um, the damage done already and things like well, I mean, I guess what what I will say also is that there's two really big focuses for this this again for the first guidelines. One is fresh water, so the water conservation goals and um, quality 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 goals. So how do you prevent things like um, too many nutrients from going into the water and polluting? You know, which, which is the case with fertilizers, um, and then land use. So you know, no, not converting land into um, agricultural developed or cleared lands and, and reducing reducing what you're working on already. So like reduction targets, restoration targets. So anyway, yeah, lots of little tidbits here. Um, I'm sure lots more to come in the future. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of the, uh, some several of the pilot companies, but two, they're interesting to me. First of all, they're not all you know, food and beverage and, and retail right. and apparel. Uh, you've got um, Neste, which is uh, renewable energy. Uh, they make a renewable diesel and some and some other products. Um, uh, they're actually uh, they're an oil refining and marketing company out of Finland. 
and they have a big renewable energy piece, but they're also an oil and gas company. And then LVMH, which I just that's really interesting. They're this luxury goods. They're, they're the, basically the house of Louis Vuitton and Moet oh, Hennessy. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have, uh, I think, uh, Christian Dior, and Tiffany and Sephora. Uh, it'll mm. be interesting to see, you know, and of course, you know, you think about a company like Tiffany and they're sourcing, uh, uh, you know, diamonds and, and other minerals and jewels from um, through mining, which has a big biodiversity impact. They're sourcing uh, things from 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 the ocean, coral, re- coral, and and other things from the ocean. Um, you know, these are not. And then, of course, the gold and, and silver and platinum and brass and everything else that goes into the metals in their products. So there's a lot of when you when you start looking up the supply chain, these companies that you would not think of as related to nature are. Um, uh, you know, are very yeah. much tied to that. And that's before you get to the, the, the beautiful blue boxes and all the paper and forestry. They're, right. they're a huge deforestation company in some ways. Um, uh, some of these totally. goods companies with all the packaging. So yeah, yep. really, really interesting. There, there's just one thing I want to add. Um, and first of all, apologize, apologies to Gucci for saying you were part of LDA. <laughs> but um, I don't hear anything about the people the indigenous people mm. um, that are involved in these, in in these that are going to need to be involved in these strategies. So that to me seems like a little bit of a missed opportunity. Maybe I just don't see it in this story. Maybe it's really part of the framework, and I, I need to look into that. But I sure as heck hope that there is a lot on that because that f- feels like uh, a big miss if it's not. So I'll take us to our final piece, Joel, which is the the essay that you write, wrote about the uh, Global Treaty for Addressing Plastics. And I'm I'm butchering the formal name of it. Oh, the Global Treaty on Plastic Pollution, um, which we, we know is being uh, set in motion. It was set in motion last year at one of the first gatherings of, in this particular instance, it's what's called the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee on Plastic Pollution, not to be confused with a conference of parties. <laughs> and as, as we've discussed in the past, they have so many different locations. But that's an aside. The, the point being that there are these um, intense negotiations starting on how do we address plastic pollution across the globe. And um, it's it's here, folks. Like this, this stuff is is out there. We're, we're, and it's not the, the treaty's not here necessarily, but the this is the strong intentions are there, and companies better prepare. So, Joel, you decided to get this out into to our um, audience and, and to raise some of the issues that um, corporations really need to be thinking about. Just curious, um, what was the inspiration for this particular piece, and where do you see this going? Well, the inspiration is that next week, starting on Monday, the 29th, in Paris will be the second meeting of the uh, Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, INC2, as it's called. INC1 was last year uh, and uh, sort of set up the notion of this plastic treaty. And now there are delegates from around the world and, and, and activists and advocates and business groups and others are going to come together to try and you know, hammer out what should this treaty be and do and cover. Um, so that's what's going on. And and uh, they're going to be looking at, you know, things like, how do you, do you ban or phase out some of the kinds of plastics or polymers? Uh, how do you reduce the dispersion of microplastics into the air, water, and soil? 
how do you encourage, incentivize circular designs of products and packaging so there's little or no waste? Uh, how do you clean up the plastics already in the environment? And, and how do you do all of this by facilitating a just transition and inclusive transition, particularly of the informal waste sector in developing economies that would are often in the past have been referred to as trash pickers, the, the people, the families, the communities that make a living by sorting through the massive waste dumps in, in India and, and other countries and picking out the valuable commodities and, and selling those in, into whatever the open market is. So plastic is having its moment. I mean, we had this moment, you know, back some years ago when, when the the 2018, when the plastic, the turtle with the straw of its nose and all that, that horrible stuff, and it led to this ban of plastic straws and all these things. Um, what's interesting all about that is that we haven't really heard much since then. Um, and so I talked to a number of the people involved with the treaty or, or looking very closely with the treaty, whether they're directly involved as delegates or, or observers in UN speak. And yeah, I mean, there's, um, you know, do you attack the supply by, you know, phasing out certain things or incentivizing certain things? Or do you try and tweak the demand? So there's a lot of questions. And I tried to break down you know, some of these things. And, and the other one I thought was really interesting is, uh, you know, Montreal or Paris. And what that means is, does this, is this a narrowly focused uh, treaty like the non 1987 Montreal Protocol that helped phase out uh, ozone depleting substances or much more broadly like the Paris Agreement, which covers you know basically all of the economy and leaves it up to individual countries to figure out how they're going to do what they what needs to be done globally through these nationally determined contribution NDCs as they're called in UN speak. So lots of things to 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 figure out here and, and lots of different interests. The ocean folks are clearly interested in, in all of this. The chemical and fossil fuel industry is, you know, they understand the problem, but they want to, you know, focus more on end of pipe solutions. The, let's deal with the waste better, who better recycling, even though recycling has been largely a failure in, globally in terms of getting uh, anywhere near the rates we need. <laughs> So that's what spurred this is just this fascinating uh, trying to understand what what are we what needs to happen here if we had a global treaty which apparently we're you know bound to do or on the on the path to do from 196 countries what is it how does it work and how does it get implemented and enforced and accounted for uh, all of these things so. I guess the last thing I'll say here is that is is uh, actually the next to the last thing I'll say here is that a lot of this is really based on what we learned around climate um, in terms of you know that you basically need to uh, understand your impacts and measure them and account for them and then figure out how do you reduce them and then report and communicate all of that. It's that's where we're headed with all of this. Um, so uh, uh, I'll, I'll end this segment with. Uh, uh, just a couple minute, two minute clip from a conversation I had with Simon Fischweiker, who's the uh, head of corporations and supply chains at CDP North America. Now, you may recall that last week, uh, Jesse Klein reported that CDP had just introduced plastic reporting protocol. And, uh, and so CDP and, and Simon in particular are, are very much looking at this. And I asked Simon, how much of all of this that's going on right now with the treaty is is just 
tinkering at the margins versus rethinking the larger system. Here's what he had to say. Well, I mean, this is the great question that we have. It's not just a plastics question. I think that that's true of, of all the issues we deal in, climate change, deforestation, water security, where um, certainly we're seeing shifts. We're seeing, uh, you know, sort of the energy efficiency, renewable energy, sort of uh, uh, looking at the operational impacts. Um, but I think this is why CDP is taking this value chain approach and, it, and, and is looking at all aspects of the plastic value chain, because ultimately that allows us to talk about business model transformation and, and transition. Um, and so, you know, the CDP that, that we're looking to, to sort of transform into and in, over the coming years is one that's not just benchmarking against sort of disclosure criteria, but benchmarking against transition criteria. And so we've done a lot on the credible, what is a credible climate transition, but the sort of transition thinking to a nature positive, not just net zero, but to a net zero nature positive world shouldn't necessarily um, talk about the issues around consumption and the issues around total plastic, not just reducing uh, from from sort of where we are today to, uh, you know, less than that, but but towards a, a transition to a world in which um, the use of plastic and creation of plastic is in line with what it what it needs to be from a planetary perspective. I think the challenge that we face is is maybe we don't have the same um, 1.5 degrees Celsius certain parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere type of quantitative metric, but um, the science based target for nature initiative that CDP contributes to sort of setting that playing field for ocean health and planetary other planetary bonds like forests that I think will will give us the tools to over time. Um, have the outcomes that we can we can sort of recreate some of the work of the science-based target initiative on climate for other issues, i.e. plastics. S&P Global, the venerable research and indexing firm, recently launched a nature and biodiversity risk data set to help companies and investors assess nature-related impacts and risks. Given our growing interest in business and biodiversity, I wanted to learn more. And joining me now to talk about it is Richard Madison, president of S&P Global Sustainable One. Hey, Rich, and welcome back to Green Biz 350. Hey, Joel, how are you doing? I'm very pleased to be here today. Great, doing great, thanks. So first of all, for those not schooled in financial data sets, what is a nature and biodiversity data set? Great question. So what we've done is uh, we have worked with the United Nations Environment Program uh, and an affiliated body to them, the World Conservation Monitoring Center, to develop a methodology to understand nature from a business perspective. Uh, this methodology is called the Nature Risk Profile, and it's open source. So actually, we're encouraging lots of organizations to figure out how to use this type of method to analyze nature. What have we done with that methodology? Well, basically, we have mapped 17,000 companies and over 1.6 million assets that those companies own to various parts of the world, like, you know, locations in the world, if you like, because obviously nature is very location specific. Um, and with that information, uh, we have then analyzed and created a data set that really highlights, you know, the exposure of the world's largest companies to both nature risk, um, nature dependency, and opportunity as well. So impact and dependent. 
So you wouldn't do anything like this unless you saw a market opportunity. Talk a little bit about what's going on out there that led you to do this. Well, so, uh, you know, when you think about the backdrop to this, um, let me just say one thing very, very clearly. We cannot be net zero without being nature positive. And let me explain why. Usually our focus when we think about net zero is on things like energy transition, it's on things like renewables, and that's all very good. But the the, the black spot, the, the hidden area that we really need to be examining more is nature. Why? Because fully one third of the things that we need to do to reach net zero are linked to nature, one third. So this is bigger than let's anyone kind of, this is bigger than electric vehicles, right? You know, if we don't preserve and restore nature, we will miss our climate goals. So if the only thing you're interested in is climate goals, you still need to care about nature. Now let's put climate to one side. We actually have to care about nature too, because we live surrounded by nature. We live on a planet whose ecosystem services help us survive on this planet. So we need nature. Nature doesn't really need us, in truth. We need nature more than it needs us. This world could change quite radically and we'll carry on and just be fine without us. Um, but we need the nature that is currently in place uh, and, and surrounds us. So two major reasons. We can't hit climate goals without being nature positive. And secondly, you know, just nature for nature's sake, we need nature. And 85% of the world's largest companies have a significant dependency on nature. So in economic terms, this is critically important. We analyzed uh, the world's largest companies, the 1,200 largest companies in the world, and we found that 85% of them actually rely on nature for their business in some way. That's an amazing statistic, Rich. And, and, and I get how a, uh, a food and ag company or a company involving uh, forestry or even mining uh, would would be dependent on nature. I'm not sure it's obvious to everybody how a company, uh, let's say, you know, Microsoft or Google uh, or or uh, Walmart, for that matter, uh, what is their dependency on nature? Well, so interesting, uh, you know, when you think about uh, Microsoft or Walmart or Google, um, uh, every, every company relies on other companies in their supply chain. Uh, and, and in fact, companies uh, have customers, too. And, you know, pretty much all of our customers rely on nature. We are customers. If we're not surrounded by nature, we don't have access to water. Without water, you can't Google search. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we do all need nature in some way. And secondly, uh, you know, if, if you think about those companies, you know, they, they need vast cooling resources for their data centers. Where does that come from? So think about it. If you don't have any water in the world or not in the places where, where you really need it, then you've got significant problems. And, you know, there, there were there was a massive drought in uh, just the Cape Town, actually, uh, some time ago. It did shut down some very critical data centers owned by some of those companies you just mentioned at that point in time, which was a massive business interruption uh, and business continuity issue. So I think um, even in uh, companies where you think, well, that, you know, really, this is a long, long way off from their agenda. Um, it's actually pretty instrumental in in how we need to be thinking about the world. These nature and climate crises are twin crises that are so inextricably intertwined, we need to address them both at the same time. So how is this data set going to be used? 
Well, we hope uh, this data set is, is used um, in a number of ways. So, you know, we have a couple of things in the data set. We've got something called the dependency score, which, uh, you know, highlights the reliance of a business's operations on 21 different ecosystem services. So this is about risk and resilience, right? So really understanding business resilience and business risk. We've also got uh, something called the ecosystem footprint measure, which measures a business's direct operational impact on nature and biodiversity. And this is really looking at the land uh, and other ecosystems uh, that are that, that company might affect and uh, you know how the integrity of that ecosystem could be affected by business activity. So that's more of an impact metric, if you like. And I just want to highlight that the, the nature risk profile that we've developed with the United Nations Environment Program, we basically mapped the ecosystem integrity of the entire planet down to one square kilometer. So you can look at any business, you can look at any supply chain, you can map it to this information, and you can figure out going forward what kind of impact and dependency you're going to have at that particular point location in time. That's incredibly valuable because, you know, much like climate, you know, when we look forward, uh, we have to have better forward-looking information to make better decisions today. And so actually, uh, you know, really this kind of information is pretty critical and it needs to be used in parallel with climate information. Yeah. Are you at all concerned that th this biodiversity and nature data set is going to get wrapped up in this whole discussion about woke companies and, and e ESG uh, backlash? How do you separate this out to this to really demonstrate that this is about risk, or is this going to sort of be another one of those things that companies, you know, some people say companies shouldn't be looking at because it takes away from profits and productivity? Well, so uh, first thing I'd say is, you know, we already have a global biodiversity framework that's been agreed at COP fifteen. So the COP, the biodiversity COP, uh, the CBD COP, uh, is a parallel COP to the climate, you know, COP conferences. COP15 was in Montreal in December, and the uh, Montreal Kunming Declaration uh, basically was a commitment by pretty much every country on the planet to um, to to do 30 by 30, which is preserve 30% of nature by 2030. So we're committed as the world's citizens to preserving and then restoring and enhancing nature. This is not something we really, you know, we, we signed up in the same way as at COP21 uh, in, in uh, Paris, we signed up to climate agreements, right? Now we'll see how those commitments evolve over time and how we measure progress. But at the end of the day, the world is committed. The world's citizens are committed. So I think that's the first thing to note. The second thing is, um, this is this is very tangible. This is not some kind of, oh, how, how have you measured ESG? And you know, you've got a combination of various different factors. This is very tangible. We have measured 21 ecosystem services. We've measured the integrity of every square kilometer on the planet. And these measures have been developed with the United Nations. So this is not something that we're, we're deciding to make up by ourselves. We've, we've created a methodology in partnership with the United Nations and it's open source. So I think, um, you know, we hope that this is the type of uh, information and method that everyone can gather behind. Uh, and we welcome actually, you know, anyone using this type of methodology to do this type of analysis. You don't have to use S&P data to do this, right? We would like that, obviously. But um, the point is, this is an open source approach. And we did this on purpose. This is too important a topic uh, for us not to have a very transparent and open source methodology that underpins how you do this analysis. The final thing I'd say is, 
This is designed to support uh, the recommendations of the TNFD, so the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. I'm a, a task force member, and um, I wanted to make sure that uh, we have, um, when that framework is launched, which will be in September um, at uh, UN General Assembly and, UN, uh, and, and New York Climate Week, that actually there are tools available and there are tools on the marketplace today now, thankfully, that will help any business comply with that framework. So this data set really is designed to help businesses um, with that framework. It's not the only information out there, but it is now one of the most comprehensive data sets that, that is available on the marketplace today. Richard Madison is president of S&P Global Sustainable One. We're talking about the nature and biodiversity risk data set. Thanks so much, Rich. Joel, it's been a pleasure as ever. Thank you so much. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. And while you're on the site, check out our seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. We'd love to hear from you. Your comments, questions, and tips hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather will be off next week, but Sarah Golden and I will be here with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time.